one of the most commonly tossed around terms used to describe Christianity and the church today in North America is hypocrite. Hypocrite. A recent study was done of 16 to 29 year olds who profess no faith at all. And some 85% of them polled said that they viewed Christians and Christianity in church as being full of hypocrites. And because of that, they believed that it was valid and correct and right to have not only a negative perception of the church, but to reject its claims to truth. It's with that concern in mind, at least in the backdrop, a significant reason why Corinthians was written is because there was a lot of hypocrisy going on in the Corinthian church. It's not really a new charge that's been brought against the church, and it's not a new phenomenon either, that there is a difference between what we confess and how we live. And Paul, having spent a good deal of time with these Corinthians, uh, attempting to plant this church, uh, finds out a number of unsavory things about these Corinthians after he left them. He's told, for instance, that there is incest in the church, such sexual immorality that wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles. He's told there's public drunkenness and gluttony going on in church in worship. He's told that there's selfishness, divisiveness, lawsuits, and doctrinal impurity in the Corinthian church. You see, there's hypocrisy. There is the claim to be Christian. There's the claim to believe in a certain set of beliefs and, and doctrines and practices. And then there is actually the way the Corinthians are living. And it's with that in mind that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he writes for really a simple purpose. If we could summarize the, the purpose and the perspective of the book of Corinthians, it's simply this. Close the gap. Paul was saying to these Christians, you need to close the gap. It's very fascinating that he writes these Corinthians and he doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, you're not Christians. He doesn't even say that you're not a church. He doesn't look at all the sins and all the problems that are, are within this church that they are riddled with. He doesn't look at that and say, you're outside the kingdom of God. I'm writing you an excommunication letter. They're not at that point yet. Paul says, this is what you are in Christ, and this is where you need to go. And he unfolds for 16 chapters how that is to take place. So he views them not as apostates yet. He views them as weak, struggling sinners who need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they need to hear Biblical instruction about how to live in a way that's consistent with what they are in Him. It's a commentary on Christianity in a sense. It's a commentary on the church in a sense. In a sense, this is what the churches are full of. Some churches it's different than in others. Hopefully it would be better here than some places we don't know though. The sin is going to be in the lives of Christians until the Lord Jesus comes, and so this letter will always be relevant to the church until glory. Close the gap. 
If you're a struggling, weak sinner this morning, then this book will be especially relevant and helpful to you. And that's what we want to examine as we work our way through this letter. How is it that we close the gap between what we are and what we should be? With that in mind, I want to step back now from uh, that particular idea and sort of give you a broad overview of what Corinthians is all about. And, And the first place to begin is with who wrote it. Who wrote the book of Corinthians? We see very clearly here in verse 1 that it's the Apostle Paul. It says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul wrote the book. He identifies himself as apostle. That's good for us to take a moment, I suppose, to explain what an apostle is. An apostle literally is a sent one. But that doesn't quite describe what Paul is getting at when he uses this particular term. The concept of apostle is steeped in Jewish tradition and legal terminology. The concept that stands behind apostle is the Hebrew term shaliach. And the shaliach is basically the power of attorney. A shaliach is legally someone who can go represent you in a court of law or in a legal setting. Now, the first time we purchased a home, we had our real estate agents sign for us on the day that our house closed escrow. And in order for them to be able to do that, we had to sign a set of papers which gave to our real estate agents the power of attorney so that when they sat there uh, on the day that that home closed uh, with the mortgage banker, they could sign for us as if it were us. That's the concept of Shaliach. And we, we find that uh, idea unfolded in words of Jesus in Matthew 10.40 as he commissions that his disciples to go out on a short and temporary evangelistic mission. He said unto them, he who receives you receives me. You see, the apostles don't go out on the force of their own character or their abilities or their gifting or their desires or their knowledge. They go out with the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. They went out to represent him. And so as they spoke, they spoke what Christ would speak. They had great authority. Uh, Jesus uses the same concept, concept in John chapter 13, verse 20, when he says, He who receives whomever I send receives me. So an apostle is somebody who represents Christ in his authority. And what they speak, it's Christ speaking. And because of that, the office of apostle was the absolute highest office in the church. You can validate that by simply look at many of the passages in the New Testament which talk about the gifts and the offices given to the church. It's the most authoritative. There was only a handful of these apostles. Uh, were given, for instance, the qualification of apostles in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And we are told there that an apostle had to be somebody who was with Jesus during his entire earthly ministry. They had to have been with Jesus from the time of John's baptism. They had to be an eyewitness of his ascension. And they had to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. So it limits uh, who could actually be an apostle uh, and constricts it severely there. Because only a handful of people would have been in that category. And then they had to be called by Christ. Now Paul was indeed an exception, but he argues that he was authorized to be an apostle because Jesus Christ came and met him on the road to Damascus. 
and made him an apostle. But he's an apostle, and second of all, he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God the Father. In other words, he is saying by the sovereign calling of God, he has been established in this office of apostle. He did not seize the office for himself. He did not give himself the name of calling. He did not intrude into the office. The church didn't call him. He said he is an apostle by the will of God. So that means that everything that he says in here is the words of Christ to the church. They come with authority, in other words. They cannot be viewed as advice. It's not mere advice. It's the will of God to them. They are to hear what Paul has to say and perceive the authority of God in it. And then he says that he writes in the company of Sosthenes, our brother. Literally, in the original, it's the brother doesn't mean that Sosthenes is writing the book. It just means that Sosthenes is there. He's including Sosthenes within uh, the group of people that's with Paul that gives greetings to the church. Sosthenes uh, had been the leader of this synagogue in Corinth, and he had been severely beaten at the end of uh, Paul's missionary stay there. After he converted to Christianity, he had been severely beaten by the Jews for his defection to Christianity. He was a brother. He was somebody who believed, and he was somebody who believed so passionately and diligently, he was even willing to sacrifice uh, his own safety and security. So Paul uh, writes with Sosthenes there. Perhaps Sosthenes had taken uh, a bunch of information to the Apostle Paul in Ephesus where he writes this letter from. And that's why he's included. He is really a member of the Corinthian church, but he's with Paul because they've sent him there to talk to Paul and bring him some questions that they had issues about. So, first of all, it's Paul who wrote this. And secondly, we ask, when did Paul write it? When did Paul write this letter? Now, if you turn to the back side of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. Paul tells us that he wrote this letter in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. The two very important things that we learn there. We learn, first of all, that he was in Ephesus. And he tells us the time in which he was at Ephesus. He was at Ephesus at different times. But he narrows it down. He says, this is the stay in Ephesus, which at the end of he was going to go to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Uh, well, we know that that could only be at the end of the third missionary journey. This is somewhere in the middle 50s, probably 55 A.D. or so. So Paul writes to them uh, during his third missionary journey in Ephesus towards the middle 50s. Thirdly, he writes to Corinth. He writes to Corinth. It would be helpful to know a little bit of information about the city itself. We have to make a distinction between Old Corinth and New Corinth. Old Corinth uh, was widely known as a severely corrupt and immoral city. In the ancient world, to Corinthianize was a term used widely to describe people who had fallen into great sexual immorality. To call a girl a Corinthian girl was to call her a prostitute. 
It was a city world-renowned for its great sexual immorality. Not great in a good sense, but enormous. It was destroyed, however, in 150 B.C. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt New Corinth about 100 years later. So, at the time when the Apostle Paul comes to the city, it had a population of about 200,000 people. It was an enormous city by the standards of the ancient world. It was a significant city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was filled with Greeks and Romans and uh, Near Easterners and bureaucrats and uh, army veterans and officials and all kinds of significant and important people. And it was a very, very strategically important city for the broadcasting of the gospel, not only in Corinth, but throughout all of Greece. So Paul goes to this city, and if you turn over to Acts chapter 18, you get some information about Paul's uh, initial ministry there. Acts 18, you get quite a bit of information here. We learned that Paul first came here after he had been preaching the gospel in Athens. Uh, We find, for instance, in verse 2, that as he came into the city of, of Corinth, he met a couple of Jews named Aquila and Priscilla, they were husband and wife, and we're told that they had recently been kicked out of the city of Rome by decree of Claudius, the emperor. That dates the timing bit of, of, of Paul's entry into the city. It's probably about 50 or 51 A.D. We're told that they were tent makers. In verse 3 it says, he was of the same trade, so he stayed with them and they were working the trade that they had in common. So that means that the Apostle Paul was busy tent-making for some time as he came into the city in order to sustain himself and support himself financially. But we're also told that on the weekends, Paul moonlighted as a preacher. It said he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. A very common practice of the Apostle Paul. That uh, wherever he went on his missionary journeys, he would make a beeline for the synagogue. And as a rabbi, he would have been allowed to stand up and explain the scriptures. And we're told repeatedly that the Apostle Paul went to the synagogues across the ancient world. He opened up the Old Testament and he persuaded the Jews and Greeks to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And so Paul did that week in and week out. Finally, we're told in verse 5 that Timothy and Silas came down from Macedonia. And from that time on, the Apostle Paul devoted himself day in and day out to building the church by preaching the gospel. And the story is unfolded in the following verses there, but this is really the summary of it. He begins to preach the gospel, and he uh, really instigates revolt. Uh, The Jews are finally irritated with him after just a few months of the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel. It says they blasphemed and they rose up in violence against him. They kicked him out of the synagogue and so the Apostle Paul went right next door to Titus Justice House and began a church right next door to the synagogue. So you can imagine that probably didn't help the relations between the Jews and the Christians very well at all. He preached the gospel week in and week out, and the more that he preached it, the more violence uh, began to be perpetrated against him and the believers. But we're told he was able to evangelize and convert the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, and his household, and many others. But the time came in uh, verse 9 that the violence was so bad that Paul, it seems, 
contemplate leading him in the city. And so it says the Lord came to him in a vision by night and said, Don't be afraid any longer. Go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And it says that he settled there preaching the gospel for 18 months. So that's just the backdrop of what's going on here. In Paul's ministry in Corinth, it's in the early part of the 50s, it is in the midst of much opposition and violence and persecution by the Jews. And through that ministry, a church was founded and established. So uh, that gives us the context and the perspective. Paul is writing now, at least four or five years after that initial uh, ministry among them, uh, the church has grown. And as growing churches often do, it began to encounter and experience a number of growing pains. And we'll get into that in a moment. But what's fascinating here is the Apostle Paul was aware of all of the controversy, the contention, the quarrels, the struggles, the fighting, the doctrinal problems, and the moral problems. The Apostle Paul doesn't begin by addressing any of those things. He begins in these first several verses of 1 Corinthians uh, explaining what happened to them in the Lord Jesus. He says to these Corinthians, first of all, in verse 2, that they are sanctified. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul begins by accenting the gospel, the positive. He said, this is what happened to you when the gospel was preached unto you, and the law convicted you of your sins, and drove you in humility to your knees, and to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness and justification. He says, here's what happened. You were sanctified in Christ Jesus. He said, first of all, the problem of sin was dealt with. The problem of sin was dealt with. Both the guilt and the pollution of sin was taken care of, by what happened to you when you were united to Jesus Christ. You became holy. You were separated. Then he says in the next clause that they are saints by calling. In other words, he explains that the reason why they have this status of holiness is again by the sovereignty of God. He has called them into this state of holiness. Verse 9 accents that even stronger. It says, uh, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ. Again, accenting the sovereignty of God in the effectual call of bringing them out of their darkness, out of their sins, into relationship with Jesus, which sanctifies them. He also says of them uh, that they were united with the, bro- the broader church. He says they are saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, there is no division because there's divisions in their churches. There's no division with them in the broader body. He says you are united with the church of Jesus Christ and by all those who call upon the name of the Lord in every place. Then he says of them in verse 5. In verse 7, that they have been enriched with spiritual gifts by the grace of God. Look at verse 5. He says, in everything, you are enriched in him. Everything. In other words, he says that when you are called into Christ, you are given grace. You are partakers with him and his treasures and his gifts. You are enriched. He makes it very specific. He says, in all speech and knowledge. 
It could be here that speech means their capacity to explain or expound the message, but I believe it's probably here doctrine. I think what Paul means by this word in the original is that uh, they were catechized thoroughly in the faith and they were enriched in the breadth of doctrine which they needed to know. And then the second spiritual gift there says all knowledge, and that really means insight. Uh, they grasped the doctrine, they were furnished with all necessary doctrinal truth, and they were given insight into it, understanding. In other words, they had been discipled well, they had been catechized thoroughly, and they understood not only intellectually the faith, but its practical outworking in life. They were very enriched. The Apostle Paul says they were so overwhelmingly enriched, they were not lacking in any gift. Then he says in verse 6 that the testimony uh, concerning Christ was confirmed among them. And probably what the Apostle Paul means by that is that it had been verified among them. If you study the churches which we find in the New Testament, uh, you will find that it seems the church of Corinth excelled every other church in the confirmation of the gospel unto them. They excelled in spiritual gifts. They excelled in the supernatural apostolic gifts which confirmed the gospel message externally. They spoke in tongues more. They prophesied more. More miracles were experienced among them. They had been enriched in supernatural gifts and graces. The gospel had been thoroughly verified. And most likely was because Corinth was such a difficult place to be a Christian in. It was so thoroughly pagan in its context and so thoroughly opposed to Christianity not only by the pagans among them and the Jews among them, that by God's grace and providence, he verified the gospel message among them beyond other places. So he says that they were, the gospel was verified among them so that they were not lacking any gift. And now finally, he says they were awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. An interesting phrase there, awaiting. Uh, it is the posture of Christians across the New Testament. For instance, First uh, Thessalonians one nine says that the Thessalonians turned from idols, living in true God, to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. You find this particular word used very often of the church in the ancient world, and basically what it indicates is that they all believed that Jesus was going to return imminently. They all believed that at any minute, Jesus could come back. It's not because they all had heard a common prediction that Jesus would come at a particular date. It's just that it seems, if you look at the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, that they believed that Christ could come back at any moment. And it seems that the entire church was waiting for that. And what I believe that we're supposed to uh, learn from that is not just that they were uh, expecting that Jesus would return. It's that their entire lives had been reoriented. And that's the significant thing about that term, is that their entire lives had been reoriented. Prior to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, they lived like their world lived. And their world lived according to a particular philosophy. Seize the day. That was the mentality of the ancient Roman Empire. Seize the day. 
It was maximize pleasure, maximize opportunity, maximize enjoyment of every moment of this life now because this is all you get. They believed in an afterworld in the ancient world. They just believed it was a horrible place. If you read the literature of the ancient world, does it talk about death? It viewed death as the most boring, unending place you can imagine. The literature of the day portrays disembodied spirits in Hades, sighing and groaning and moaning because they were bored to tears. That's what they thought of death. An eternal netherworld separated from their bodies where they were eternally bored. And because that was the philosophy of the day, they lived according to the principle of seize the moment. And so their entire lives were absorbed with entertainment and the pursuit of pleasure. And so when you hear the Apostle Paul says this, that they were awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were living moment by moment uh, with expectancy that it was coming, it tells us that a major reorientation had come into their lives. They weren't living like the world anymore. He says, this is a mark of a Christian. This is somebody who realizes that the greatest hopes and dreams are not contained within this temporal world. What an enormously important doctrine we need to grab hold of this morning. For all intents and purposes, our world is exactly like the world which Paul wrote to here at Corinth. Our world may be unsure about what's going to happen after death, but it certainly believes that now is more important than later. It certainly believes that today is better than what may come later. And it's so prevalent that it often becomes a trial for us. What will be the fundamental orientation of how we live? And it's common for Christians to absorb the mentality of the world, which is to be busy about maximizing pleasure today. The exhortation that we would receive in this characteristic of these Corinthians is that we ought to be awaiting eager the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be realizing that now isn't what we live for. But the coming of Jesus Christ and living with him in glory. Very positive characteristic here of these Corinthians. They were awaiting. And finally he says in verse 8 that they will be confirmed unto the end blameless in Lord Jesus. We looked at this a week ago and we're speaking about the perseverance of the saints. The word means that they will be caused to be firm in the faith unto the end. They will not fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They will live for him until death or until Christ's return. And then finally in verse 9 he says that they were called into fellowship with his son. That means they've been united with the Lord Jesus Christ and that's a summary of all the spiritual blessings that they have. I went over that section really fast. My point wasn't to 
uh, go point by point over the blessings there was to give you a sort of a concept of the richness and the, the diversity of the blessings that they have received and the, the grace that uh, they have accessed. It's overwhelming, it's comprehensive, it's full. It's interesting that it's Paul spends so much time delineating point by point by point the things that they have been blessed with. It's so positive. And you know, if we just closed our Bibles up right there and put it away, we would think that the Church of Corinth was one of the greatest models of Christianity that's ever been. But you know... Paul's tongue turns on a dime. That brings us to our fourth point this morning. We've seen that Paul wrote it. We've seen when he wrote it. We saw something in the background of the church in Corinth and to whom it was written to. But but now we see here why Paul wrote it. And and we can see now as we turn from 10 following that Paul wrote this because he was concerned about divisions and problems in this church. He says in verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you may complete in the same mind the same judgment. Now, verse 10 doesn't quite tell you what is happening there yet, but he gives you the indication that something's radically wrong. He exhorts them to be unified, and then he tells them in three different ways that they're to be unified. He says that they are to agree, that is to say the same thing. There to be no divisions. They are to be uh, fractured into uh, little small groups. One hang out just with their own clique and nobody else. And then the last thing he says, they're to be made complete. It means that they are to repair the fractures that are among them. And so you see a picture emerging of a church that is in crisis. And then verse 11, Paul spills the beans here. He says, I have been informed concerning you by Chloe's people that there are quarrels. <laughs> Then we see what the quarrels were about, 12 and following. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Uh, They were lining up behind their favorite apostolic heroes. We'll come back to that passage and explain it more later. But there's divisions in the church. And then you read uh, more broadly in the book, you see it's not just that there are arguments and divisions, there are real sins. Uh, We're told in chapter 5, verse 1, That there's incest in the church. Paul says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Incest in the church. In fact, Paul says it's not even normal sexual uh, sexual immorality. It's so gross and so violates the, the, the nature of God's command here that even the Gentiles don't engage in this kind of immorality. And remember, I told you, Old Corinth was known to be one of those sexually immoral places in the entire world, and Paul says, you've excelled them! Imagine that in the church. Chapter 6, we're told that they're suing each other. Brother is taking brother to court. Chapter 6, he has to admonish them not to go engage in temple prostitution. Corinth was a place where you would do that. That was part of the worship of people and pagan uh, worship services was sexual immorality. He says to these Christians, they're not to go do that. I mean, it boggles the mind that Paul would have to say that to these people. It boggles the mind that Christians would do that, thinking that it's perfectly normal. It's okay. 
Oh, we could go into other problems of the church, but I think you're getting the picture here. That the Apostle Paul, on one hand, talks about the riches which are theirs in Jesus Christ, sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, uh, united to other brothers and sisters, that the gospel has been validated and confirmed among them, uh, that they uh, will be uh, preserved in the faith unto the end, uh, that they have all this riches in terms of graces given unto them, spiritual gifts, and yet what are they in practice? Divisive, unloving, sexually immoral people. There's a gap. There's a gap between what they are in Christ and how they live in the world. Luther had a term for that. Martin Luther had a term for that. Simulusus et peccator. Simultaneously justified in the sinner. He says that's what a Christian is. On one hand, they have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness has been stamped to their account. They have all their sins pardoned. That's what they are. And God views them in the Lord Jesus Christ as just because Christ's righteousness is on their account. But on the other hand, their life is marked by sin. That's the gap. That's the gap that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. In Christ you are this, and yet this is what you are in actuality. And what the Apostle Paul does with that problem here in Corinth is say, you can't just uh, be content to live that way. You cannot be content to live in your sins. If we would be instructed by this book of Corinthians today and For the next several months, as we expound it, Lord willing, we will learn to accept this principle. We cannot accept what we are today. We cannot accept the sins that are in our life. We cannot be content with repeating the same old sins, having the same old thoughts, falling short of the glory of God in the same old ways. You cannot accept that in your life and be a Christian. There must be progress. There must be growth. There must be determination to fight against sin. That's what Paul is saying and will say throughout this letter. The other shocking thing that we learn about uh, these Corinthians in, in this book also is that they're still a church. And that's shocking. They are still considered a church, Paul says to them in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That Calvin gets at this issue. Uh, he says, it may appear strange that he should give the name of a church of God to a multitude of persons who are infested with so many distempers. That Satan might be said to reign among them rather than God. But among so many pollutions, what appearance of a church is any longer presented? You see, he raises the issue. How in the world can the Apostle Paul call these Corinthians a church in view of all of the gross immorality that characterizes the life of some of his members? It's very shameful what's there. It's not condoned by Paul. How can we still call it a church? Well, he responds with the answer. He says, the ground is this. That he saw among the doctrine of the gospel was preached, that the sacraments were administered, and discipline was conducted. And these are the tokens of a true church. He said, they bore the marks. Yeah, they were faint, 
and they were problematic, they still had the, the marks, the outlines. We learn from that how we evaluate what a true church is. Is it preaching the gospel? Is it evaluating the sacraments like it? Is it conducting discipline? It may not do those things perfectly, but if it's doing it with a semblance of order as the word of God commands, then it's a true church. We don't evaluate a church then based upon the character of the lives of the people within it. And that's one of the major problems with this criticism of the church that's so prevalent today, which it forms such an easy objection to Christianity in general. Oh, I don't go to church today because there's bad people there. You know, when I hear that objection, somebody says to me, well, I'm not really interested in church because it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, you're exactly 100% right. It is full of hypocrites. I'll be the first one to admit that I am not living according to what I am called to live up to in the scriptures. See, I'm going to diffuse that argument every time I hear it. I'll say, yeah, you're 100% right. It is full of people who are not living according to the faith that they profess. So if you want to make that criticism, we'll validate it all day long. But that does not invalidate the idea that it's still a church and that there has been real change. Because the gospel is that we have been changed by God in Christ. And now as Christians, we begin to close that gap. And there will be a distance, sometimes a great distance, between what we are and what we should be. But the mark of a Christian is that he continues to persevere in closing that gap. He just doesn't live in his sins perpetually. So we say, yes, we accept your criticism. And we lament it, and we're sorry about it, and we wish it wasn't that way, but we're struggling. We're fighting. We diffuse the criticism. And so with those problems in view, we begin to understand what Paul wrote and why he said what he said. Our last point we look at this morning is what did Paul say now in view of all of the problems that he sees here in Corinth? Well, first of all, we see that he preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. If, if you read uh, from verse 17 on, for instance, in our chapter, you will see that the Apostle Paul stresses both the power and the offense of the gospel. He says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it's the power of God. He says in verse 23 that this gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to others, those who are saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. In chapter 2, he talks about his gospel ministry and the goals that he has, especially when he preached the gospel among them, he says in verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he says, my message and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith may rest not on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. What does he do? He preaches the gospel to these Corinthians. He corrects the problems that are among the Corinthians. In chapter 5 and 6, he addresses the problem of gross immorality and their lack of discipline, and he calls them out of that. He addresses the problems of temple prostitution and lawsuits, and he says, don't do that. And then in the rest of the book, he addresses a whole series of questions that he has been sent by the Corinthians, and he answers them one by one. So in chapter 7, he answers their question about marriage. In chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the problem of, eat, of meat sacrificed to idols. In chapter 10, 
He addresses a problem about idolatry. In chapter 11, he concerns himself with order in public worship, and particularly how to administer the sacraments. In chapters 12 through 14, he instructs them in the role and purpose of spiritual gifts. In chapter 15, he addresses problems in their doctrine of the resurrection. In other words, Paul deals with the issues. Paul deals with the issues. Paul deals with the misunderstandings. Paul deals with the sins, and Paul deals with how to apply Christianity to life. That's what this book is about. Paul deals with how to apply Christian faith to life in a fallen world. And as we close this morning, I would want us to see finally how he does that. How does Paul address the question of how do you close the gap between what you are in Christ and how you live in the world right now. How do we apply this faith to our life? And I want you to see he does that, first of all, by preaching the gospel. Very fascinating that that's his first approach to the problems there. He preaches the gospel. You know, he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church at Corinth, you people are living like a bunch of animals. Stop it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't rebuke them for their sins. He doesn't speak harshly to them. He doesn't delineate all their sins. He doesn't just jump right into all their problems. Paul begins by preaching the gospel to them. He says, this is what you are. You know, people have got that as the very first thing that we do to ourselves and what the church should be doing on a weekly basis. It should preach the gospel first. That is the beginning point of applying the word of God to us. That is the beginning point of learning to live out our Christian faith in this world. Is that we have the gospel proclaimed to us. That is the beginning of where change begins. That is the first way we learn to close the gap between what we are in Christ and how we live in the world. Is to preach the gospel first. It's to say you are different. You see that's the basis of motivation. We are different. We have been changed. We have received the grace of God. We are justified. We have been called. We are regenerate. If you don't start there, all you will produce is hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees in the church. You don't fight hypocrisy with more hypocrisy. Self-righteous, pharisaical attitudes. You fight it with the gospel. You say, this is what you are in Christ by God's grace. And secondly, Paul preaches the law to them. He says, you're doing this, and it's wrong. Stop it. That's the other thing we need in order to close that gap. That's the other thing we need in order to know how to apply the Christian faith to this life, is we need to hear the law proclaimed. When we are living in sin, and our life is disjointed, and it's inconsistent with the Word, we need the law to be preached unto us so that we realize what we are done. Why it is wrong and that we need to flee from it. Paul preaches the law to them. We need to hear the law. So that we'll be uncomfortable with ourselves. So that we'll confess our sin. So that we'll hate it. So we'll flee from it. That we'll be afraid of its consequences and living any longer in it. He preaches the law. And then finally he instructs them. He spends eight chapters teaching. 
Eight chapters. There's so many problems in this church. And what Paul does is teach. He says, you know, this is the Christian life. I'll just break it down to you what it is. Here's how you live as married people. Here's how you live with the problem of living in a sinful world. In the context of idolatry and false worship, here's what you do. Here's how your worship should be. He patiently walks them through the application of Christian doctrine to the church. He teaches. You see, that's real help for the Christian life. Preach the gospel, preach the law, and then teach. That's how you close the gap. That's how we're going to learn how to close the gap. My prayer for us is we work our way through 1 Corinthians is twofold. My prayer for us as a church, as we expound this book, as we read, as we reflect, as we think about it, that we will first of all become humble. We will be more humble. That we will see ourselves in these Corinthians. Because that's what we are. Sinful, weak, fallen, prone to wander Christians. And as we see ourselves as we are, in contrast to what we should be, that will only promote humility. And that's exactly where we need to be in order to be in position to receive proper instruction. We need to be humble because humble people realize change must come and that they need instruction to get to where they should go. So my prayer as we expound this is that we see ourselves in what Paul says and that we grow in humility. There's a tremendous gap between what we are and what we should be. And then secondly, as a consequence, that we fight our own hypocrisy. I hope that all of us take that lesson away from this book now and in the coming weeks that we are to be humble. But then secondly, in that humility, we learn, we grow, and we fight our own hypocrisy. We fight that great change or that great gap that exists and that we start taking instruction from Paul and that we too learn how to live this Christian life as God calls us. That's my prayer for us. And I trust that the Lord will confirm that in us as we are instructed by the Apostle here. Let's pray.